hello and welcome back to the killer kind or welcome if you're new here i'm your host stephanie miller as always before we get into today's episode i want to say thank you to everyone who listened to my interview with the guys over at the unclever podcast it was fun i really enjoyed it hopefully i can do more one day or have a guest on my podcast soon I'm actually working on a whole new podcast setup, trying to put together a little studio spot in my house. So hopefully we can have a video feature to the killer kind or have a spot for guests to at least come and be on the podcast. Now, it'll probably be the new year before I can get everything together, but just know that I am working on it and things are happening over here and behind the scenes. <laughs> now, if you have any suggestions on what you want to see or hear on this podcast, let me know. You're always welcome to drop me some suggestions. You can DM me on the podcast Instagram page, or you can email me at killerkindpod at gmail.com. I'm not the most creative person on the planet, but I do want to give you guys more, more out of this podcast. So I'm open to all ideas, but let's move on and talk about today's case. This is a solved one. The last episode was a disappearance. And if you haven't listened yet, I hope you'll check that out. But today we have an interesting one. It starts out with a disappearance that takes an ugly turn. But not only that, there's two suspects that are both pretty sketchy, to be honest. And I have a small challenge for you. I want you to try to guess before you get to about the halfway mark. And then let me know if you were right on who did it. It was a lot of twists and turns in this one. So you're in for a ride. But without further ado, let's dive into the murder of Sabine Bueller. Sabine Musel Bueller was a truly amazing woman. There's not too much on the backstory of her that I could find, but we do know that she moved from Germany to America to a picturesque beach town in her early 30s. It was Anna Maria Island, which is off the coast of Florida, down around Tampa, Those from that area said that it was like a different world. There was no high-rise condos, little to no crime, and it was simple living. But it was paradise to everyone who lived there, including Sabine. A few years after moving to Anna Maria Island, she met a man named Tom Bueller, and the two were married after just two weeks of meeting. And despite their quick marriage, the two were great together, and they settled into married life well. Tom was a little more reserved, but Sabine was the life of the party, and they always say opposites attract, right? So it just worked. Now, Sabine had a dream of owning her own resort, and when the 1950s Haley Motel went up for sale, she jumped on it. One of her close friends said the place was pretty run down at the time, but if anybody could turn it around, it would be Tom and Sabine, and they did. They turned it into a super cute and fun motel. They had parties and several activities for guests to enjoy any time of day. Haley's Motel is still considered an icon on Anna Maria Island, and it's somewhere you can still visit today, actually. I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can check it out. But Sabine was making her dreams come true. She was, again, the life of the party, but she was also the kindest person anyone had ever met. Her and Tom joined the Turtle Watch community, which was a huge deal on the island at the time, 
and Sabine's friend Susie Fox was head of the Turtle Watch, and she was looking for volunteers, and Susie said Sabine and Tom were like her fourth volunteer to join. There were nine sections of the beach, each a mile long, and the couple offered to do as many sections as they needed to. Sabine also helped another future close friend named Nancy Ambrose, who had cancer at the time they met, and she was struggling to find a job that would allow her to sort of come and go to the hospital for her chemo visits and various appointments. But Sabine welcomed her and gave her a job, telling her she could go whenever she needed to. Nancy said that was one of the happiest days of her life because somebody was finally giving her a chance. So you get the picture. Sabine was an all-around great person who was living her life to the fullest, living out her dream, and all of Anna Maria Island knew her and they all loved her. Sabine spent almost 20 years in this island town and 15 years with her husband, Tom. However, by 2008, the two had separated, but they still were legally married, and they remained close friends and business partners. With that said, both she and Tom did start seeing other people and had both moved in with their new partners. An odd situation to some, but no hard feelings between the two. And 2008 was a good year for Sabine. She was dating a younger, good-looking guy named Bill Cumber, 10 years her junior, She was 49, and he was 39 at the time. Despite their age difference, their relationship seemed to work great. Plus, everyone could tell how happy Sabine was. Outside of her love life and running the motel, she spent that year campaigning for Barack Obama, which was difficult in this widely Republican island. But she had high hopes, and she and her friend Nancy planned to attend a victory party the night of the election, which was November 4th, 2008. The day seemed to go on like normal, but it wouldn't end that way. The night of the election, everyone found out that Obama won, and Nancy headed to the party as expected. However, when she got there, she couldn't find Sabine. She saw Tom Bueller there and a few other friends, but no sign of her friend. Now, Nancy said that she got to the party kind of late, so at the time she just assumed she just missed her friend. Maybe she had already left. Didn't really think too much of it. But two days later, when Sabine didn't show up to work at the motel, Nancy knew something was wrong. She said that was just not something that she would do. She was always dependable. Plus, she loved the motel. She was always there. So her friends had kind of started to worry about her a little bit. You know, she was always there. She was always in touch with someone. So where was she? Now, later that night and into the next morning, again, this is two days later after the election, at around 2.30 a.m., a patrol officer pulled over a white Pontiac convertible with a busted taillight. As the officer approached the car, a man jumped out and started running. Luckily, the officer caught the guy and brought him in to custody. Turns out, it was a man by the name of Robert Corona, and he was caught driving Sabine's car. But why? Well, Robert told an interesting story. He said that he knew the owner of the car, 
they had been doing crack cocaine together, and they allowed him to take it. And when the police ran the plates and found out the owner was actually Sabine Musel-Bueller, they knew they needed to find her. So, later that morning, Detectives Jeffrey Bliss and John Kinney of the Manatee County Police Department head over to Haley's Motel and speak to Tom. And Tom said that he hasn't seen or heard from his estranged wife in two days. He hasn't filed a police report or a missing persons report because he wasn't too concerned. Yes, he was starting to get worried, but didn't really think it was necessary just yet. However, when the police came by, he obviously knew now was the time to report her missing. At this point, Tom and a few of Sabine's friends heard the story from the police about who found her car and what he was telling them. Her friend Nancy said there was no way that Sabine was smoking crack with this known felon, apparently. She hated people smoking. She would not allow it at her hotel, not even on the property. She was sort of a health nut, and this was also just one of her pet peeves. There was no way that she'd be out doing drugs. Plus, she was also known to never let anyone drive her car. So basically, there was just no way this story was true, according to her friends. So after they take Robert Corona in, they also take the car in to be processed. Especially after the owner is nowhere to be found, they want to search the car and try to see if there's any sign of Sabine and where she might be. And when looking through the car, a few things stand out. The most alarming is blood spots throughout the car on one of the seatbelts and mostly in the back seat. And not only that, there was a large chunk of the back seat cut out, like literally with a knife a chunk of the back seat is cut out. Investigators conducted a luminol test, and sure enough, there were blood traces all around the back seat. This obviously turned the investigation from a missing persons case to a homicide. I mean, there was still somewhat hope, but it did not look good for Sabine. So investigators go back to this Robert guy and question him about the blood found in the car. And they straight up ask him, you know, did you murder Sabine? And he quickly changes his story and fully denies any involvement in a murder. He said that his original story was not true, that he actually found the car parked behind a rundown bar called Gator Lounge. He said he saw the car, the doors were unlocked, and he saw the keys inside. So he decided to take it for a joyride. And that was it. There was nothing more to it. Bonner Joy, a friend of Sabine's, ran the local newspaper, The Islander, and she heard a few different rumors and theories going around town. One being that Sabine went to an Obama victory party across town. Bonner said she would have crossed through a very rough part of town to get to that party, and she thought maybe she was carjacked by that Robert guy. Another theory was that Tom, Sabine's estranged husband, had something to do with it. And this was certainly looked into understandably. None of her friends believed this theory, though. But there were a few suspicious things that stood out to police. And we'll get into that. One being that the two were not together and they were seeing other people. Detectives were surprised by this, basically because legally they were still married. And the two owned the motel together. 
However, friends told investigators that they weren't together romantically at all and that Tom had a girlfriend and Sabine had recently started dating someone new as well, a local artist who used to work at the motel as a handyman. So at first, police wanted to look into Tom. Could he be jealous of Sabine's new relationship? And when looking into the estranged husband, investigators asked Tom if he had a life insurance policy for his wife, again, since they were still legally married. And he said that he did. It was worth $100,000. With the 2008 economy the way it was, could money have been a motive? That was a lot of people's question. Besides a life insurance policy, there was really nothing pointing to Tom, though. Plus, everyone knew both Tom and Sabine knew they still loved each other. Not romantically anymore, but Tom would never harm Sabine. He was happy as long as she was happy. Not to mention, who was the new boyfriend of Sabine's? We need to be looking at him, right? We all know police always look at those closest to the victim first. So yes, of course, the estranged husband. And then it has to be the boyfriend second. So, investigators pay a visit to Bill Cumber, and he basically tells them that the last time he saw Sabine was between 10.30 and 11 p.m. on the night of November 4th, so again, election night. He said the two had gotten into an argument, and she left. Since the argument was just between the two of them, and Sabine was nowhere to be found, there was really no one to corroborate their story. So at this point, they had the boyfriend and the husband somewhat on the back burner. Couldn't really rule either one of them out yet, especially since it was an odd dynamic. A dynamic that investigators felt had to be behind Sabine's disappearance. So investigators pressed Tom a little more, trying to find out more about their relationship. And he said that they were married for many years. I think it was 10 years total. But the romance just kind of fizzled out. But they remained good friends and even better business partners. Now, with that said, he did mention that he caught Sabine and her new man having sex in one of the motel rooms. And Tom was mad about it. He said it was the lack of respect behind it, not jealousy. And sure, Tom can say that he wasn't jealous, but could he be lying to keep the heat off himself? Nobody could be too sure at the time. But with all that said, Assistant State Attorney Art Brown said that Tom Mueller was extremely cooperative and he was willing to allow police to search anywhere on his property that they thought was necessary. And y'all, this case gets even more strange. I think you're waiting for the ending after that first part. So just 12 days after Sabine's disappearance... The motel was up in smoke. Part of Haley's motel was set on fire in a clear arson situation, and everyone was shocked. One of Sabine's friends said that her jaw was on the floor when she found out about the fire, and she asked herself, could this get any more bizarre? And honestly, it kind of does. We have two possible suspects. Again, the boyfriend and the husband. And basically, the husband is starting to look worse and worse, which we'll get into. But basically, police feel like it has to be one of these two guys. But then again, they still have this Robert Corona guy who was caught with Sabine's car. 
And they do go back to him a few times, especially after they test the blood found in the car and it was a match to Sabine. But after a while, police were able to find two people to corroborate his story. The second story he gave, that is, (laughs) that it was just a crime of opportunity. He apparently had two guys in Sabine's car with him that said he found the car unlocked and all three of them took it for a ride. And then Robert was pulled over after he had dropped these guys off. Plus, detectives questioned employees at the bar, and no one had seen Sabine there at any point, so that helped. Robert was charged with car theft, but was ruled out as a suspect in Sabine's disappearance and possible murder. So where was Sabine? Tom and some friends of hers just knew that, honestly, Sabine was no longer alive. Tom said in a TV interview that when they found her car with the keys inside and she was nowhere to be found, he knew she was gone, and so did everyone else. But what happened to her? Who could have taken the life of a woman that everybody loved? Nobody knew what to think. Investigators were certainly treating this like a homicide, especially after the suspicious fire, likely used to cover up evidence. Police knew they were looking for a body at this point, so they decided to search the beach, thinking her body could have been buried out there, somewhere, anywhere. They brought a large group of officers as well as cadaver dogs. They had ground-penetrating radar, but sadly, they came up with nothing. And one year after the disappearance, there was still no sign of Sabine and nothing to suggest what could have happened to her. On the anniversary of her disappearance, her friends held a candlelight vigil on the beach, and Tom threw a flower wreath in the ocean in honor of his wife. But guys, let's stop and go through all the evidence against our two suspects. So, I've mentioned a lot about Tom, the husband. There was really no physical evidence against him. However, it wasn't easy to rule him out. And on top of that, he didn't make himself look too good when right around the anniversary of Sabine's disappearance, Tom reached out to the insurance company and tries to collect the life insurance money. He did have to go to court and try to get a death certificate first in order to receive the money. And when he was filing the paperwork to do this, he listed two separate life insurance policies, one worth $100,000 the only one he mentioned to investigators, but there was also a second one worth $200,000. So this was a red flag to everyone involved in the case. Why didn't he mention the second life insurance policy? So that's why when it came time for the hearing, some local reporters along with a large group of Manatee County detectives were all in the room. However, Tom was told that Sabine had to be missing for five years before they would grant him a death certificate. And many people questioned Tom from that day on, that really, they really thought it could be him. But then there's the boyfriend, our suspect number two, if you will. He's a newer guy to the area, not near as well known as Sabine. Plus, he's 10 years younger than her. And to top it off, he has a criminal history. Yep. That's right. Bill Cumber had been in jail previously, actually prison. Detectives found out pretty early on that Bill had once worked for Sabine and Tom at the motel as a handyman, which I mentioned earlier. But apparently while he was working there, he was arrested and charged with arson. 
He had gotten into an argument with his then-girlfriend, and he tried to set her house on fire with her and her kids still inside. Nobody was hurt, thank God, but still horrifying. Now, none of this stopped Sabine and Tom from being there for him. They would send him money and letters of support while he was in prison. Apparently, this is when Sabine and Bill's relationship started. Supposedly, Sabine kept sending letters back and forth to Bill by herself. And by the time he got out of prison, Tom and Sabine had separated and she was there waiting for him. So the guy clearly doesn't have a great track record. And that's why investigators really couldn't shake the thought that Bill might be their guy. They visited him often, asking questions and pressing him about what happened to Sabine. Again, he was the last person to have been known to see her. And the last time he saw her, he openly said they had gotten into an argument. He was brought in for a formal interview a couple days after she disappeared, and the detectives conducting the interview pressed him pretty hard. He said, yes, they had gotten into an argument and she left. And he did. He felt bad about her leaving. He said in a news interview that he feels responsible for letting her walk out that night. But he swore that he did not do anything to hurt her. He wanted her back just as much as everyone else. Now, as I mentioned, the police took his initial statement and initially couldn't do too much with it. With that said, not long after the fire took place, Bill Cumber moved out of his apartment that he shared with Sabine. She was the one paying for pretty much everything, so Bill didn't last long after she was gone. However, this gave police the opportunity to search that apartment. And what they found was troubling. Inside the apartment, a forensics team found the presence of Sabine's blood on the couch and the wall. The blood did match the DNA found in Sabine's car as well. And they also found a little more in the car. They also found Bill's fingerprints on the steering wheel. Most people wouldn't think much of that since they're dating. However, we know Sabine didn't let anybody drive her car. Tom said that she wouldn't even let him drive her car when they were together. So now this doesn't look too good for Bill, right? But attorney Art Brown said that, Quote, we didn't have enough evidence for a conviction. And at that point, without a body, we couldn't definitely say that Sabine was murdered. With Bill and Tom both, and with any lead, they were coming up empty. A few weeks after Bill left town, he was caught driving without a license. Since he was still on parole from his last stint in jail, he wasn't allowed to leave town without notifying his parole officer which he did not do, so he was taken back to prison for violating parole. There was one theory that Sabine actually left town as well, because there were three women that swear they saw Sabine at the Tampa airport a few weeks after that she disappeared. The detectives checked into this lead, obviously, and they found that her passport had not been used, and there was no sign of her on security cameras. So that lead sort of fizzled out pretty quickly, even though there was still some hope. Sadly, there were no leads for the next three years. That was until 2011, when a local man who lived two blocks away from Sabine's apartment 
was clearing out the brush out in front of his beachfront property when he made a chilling discovery. He found Sabine Bueller's purse. He immediately took it to the police station and they found her ID inside. And then in their eyes, this proved that Sabine had never left the island and basically confirmed that she was murdered, not that she just ran away. So investigators felt that this piece of evidence, along with all the circumstantial evidence, could give them a good shot at charging Bill Cumber with the murder of Sabine Musel Bueller. Since he was already in prison, it was pretty easy for detectives Jeffrey Bliss and John Kinney to sit him down for questioning. Of course, at first, he denied any and all wrongdoing for a long time. And at one point, the detectives were able to offer Bill a deal. He had to tell them where he dumped the body in exchange for a lesser sentence. And he said, quote, I'll take my chances with a jury. Now, this pretty much confirmed any doubt they had about Bill being their guy. Why would an innocent man say that? Detective Kenny said in a later interview that the hair on the back of his neck stood up because if he was innocent, he would have continued to deny having anything to do with it. So this was even more motivation to charge this guy with murder. Detective Bliss had a meeting with Bill's lawyer and pretty much laid out all the evidence, showing that he was going to have a very hard time winning his case. And his lawyer agreed. So he took the evidence to Bill and basically told him the same thing, that he needed to take a deal. So Bill's lawyer countered the original offer and said that he would tell detectives where he buried Sabine's body in exchange for a 20-year sentence. Finally, on October 15, 2015, Bill Cumber pleaded no contest. Which, for those of you who may not know, pleading no contest means you are waiving your right to a trial. You don't have to actually admit guilt, but by pleading no contest, you are essentially saying there's enough evidence to convict you and you're accepting the charges against you. So, Attorney Art Brown sits down with Bill and basically takes a taped confession. And Bill explains everything. He breaks down. He said the night of the election, the two of them were at the apartment and Sabine smelled cigarette smoke on Bill. This was something, again, she despised and she confronted him about it. And the two got into an argument. And she basically told him that she couldn't do this anymore, meaning she wanted out of the relationship. And at that point, Bill snapped. He said he literally lost control. And many have speculated since hearing the story that he panicked because she was pretty much his meal ticket. She was the one paying for everything, including a place for him to live. Although killing her didn't help. But anyways, Bill goes on to say that he hit Sabine over the head and she started bleeding. He said it scared her so much and she covered her face with her hands, but that didn't stop him. He explained that after he hit her, he grabbed her by the throat and ultimately choked her until she stopped moving. He said there was a moment of remorse immediately after she was gone. 
He said he couldn't believe what he had done, but he knew that he did not want to go back to prison. So he decided to dispose of her body. Bill said that he rolled her body up in a sheet before putting her in the back seat of her own car. He then drove two blocks away to a small pavilion where he and Sabine would go often to watch sunsets. And he buried her right there, right there in the sand. It's disturbing to think about the people that have gone to that same place to do the same thing. Watch a sunset or a sunrise under this cute little pavilion. And little did they know, under their feet was a buried body. It's just terrible to think about. Bill went on to confess that he chose a beach access path near Haley's Motel. And also he found out that he stole a shovel from the motel as well. All to make it look like Tom was the killer. I love how that wasn't ever really an issue. Like, he was never the one to make it look like it was Tom. Poor Tom focused too much on the life insurance policy. And we all know if you get murdered and your spouse is trying to collect life insurance, then it's always the spouse. So, poor Tom wasn't thinking straight there. But, moving on. So, after he buried Sabine, Bill said that he drove her car to the Gator Lounge in Bradenton, hoping that somebody would find it and steal it. And he was right. He's got his wish. But that was the end of it. And side note, he was never charged with the arson. So the arson situation was actually never solved. Sabine's friend Barbara Hines said she believes Bill Cumber was a vicious and talented con man. She said, I have no doubt that Sabine was in love with the person that he pretended to be. And unfortunately for her, he wasn't the person that he actually was. There's a video since released by the police showing Bill Cumber basically shackled, guiding them to the pavilion on the beach where he buried her body. I'll try to find that and include that in the show notes for you. But luckily, Bill Cumber is currently incarcerated in an Indian Town, Florida prison. He is scheduled to be released, though, in 2031, which is slightly terrifying to think about. So, what did you guys think? Did you guess that it was the boyfriend, or were you thinking it was Tom? I really do feel bad for Tom. I feel like... Those that didn't really know him well really probably thought that he had something to do with it. There were a few articles that interviewed people close to Tom and they explained that he really needed the money sooner than later to help keep the motel alive. Sabine was the marketing person. She was the promoter. She was the face of the motel. So without her, he had to pretty much step it up. And again, the 2008 economy you know, obviously it crashed. He needed all that he could get basically at the time, which I completely understand. But as always, I would love to know your thoughts on today's case. Be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram page to leave your comments on today's episode post. Also, while you're there, I posted a few questions in the Instagram story. I wanted to know if anyone would be interested in hearing an episode not related to true crime. I thought about in the month of October, maybe doing an episode on either conspiracy theories, cryptids, or urban legends, folklore, something like that. 
and pretty much everybody said conspiracy theories. So music to my ears. <laughs> so if you have any suggestions or want an episode on one of the other options as well, let me know. And then send some suggestions on which conspiracy theory or the other options that you'd want me to talk about. But that'll do it for me this week, guys. I'll be back here in two weeks. Until then, stay safe, guys. Bye.